Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Those of us who are parents, if we're honest with ourselves, have to admit to trembling at times in thinking about the legacy that we pass on to our kids. We want it to be good, we want it to be healthy, we want it to be in the right and the positive direction. And yet we live in a broken world, a world fractured by sin, and because of that, even our best thoughts for ourselves we don't attain, not even to speak of God's best thoughts for us. And so we realize there will be some challenges along the way with what we pass on, but we still live in that direction. So along those lines, this past week, I came across a list online that was entitled, 25 Things My Mother Taught Me. Now, these are the things that we learned from what our mothers and our fathers had to say to us. Now, I realize that your mother or you, if you're a mother, never said these things, but you had a friend who had a mother who did. So you'll probably recognize some of these things and may even begin to finish some of the statements. I'm not going to read all 25 of them, just a smattering. My mother taught me to appreciate a job well done when she said, if you kids are going to kill each other, do it outside. I just finished cleaning. (laughs) My mother taught me religion. You better pray that's going to come out of that carpet. (laughs) My mother taught me foresight. Make sure you wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. Yeah, you had the same mother, I see. My mother taught me irony. Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. That's it. My mother taught me about the weather. This room of yours looks like a tornado blew through it. My mother taught me about hypocrisy. If I've told you once, I've told you a million times, stop exaggerating. My mother taught me the circle of life. I brought you into this world, and I can... There you go. Take you out of it. My mother taught me about behavior modification and genetics. Stop acting like your father. (laughs) My mother taught me about anticipation. Just wait till we get home. (laughs) My mother taught me about medical science. If you don't stop crossing your eyes, they're going to... Stay that way. Exactly. You don't even need to go to med school for that one. My mother taught me wisdom, Pastor Dan, wisdom. When you get to be my age, you'll understand. And finally, my mother taught me justice. One day you'll have kids, and I hope they turn out just like you. (laughs) All those things that we learned from mother and from father. And now we're in the process of passing them on to our own kids. So one day, some years down the road, in a worship service like this one, they'll go through this same list, and your kids will be sitting there thinking about you, thinking about me. Because that's the way it happens, which is a bit worrisome, to be honest with you. 
Because the truth is, we might smile at some of these statements, but the truth is, it can be tough on the next generation. I want to read you some words from Meredith Small, who some years ago now wrote in The New Scientist about a research project that was going on at the time, tracking cortisol levels, the stress hormone levels, in children, depending on what it was that they were facing in their world. Maybe they were fighting with the kids in the neighborhood or doing well at school or difficulties on the playground or problems at home. And the researchers were tracking the cortisol levels, how they rose and fell, how long they stayed elevated. I want to read you from that piece some words from the new scientist. Persistently high cortisol levels can be especially damaging in children. When stress continues over days, weeks, or years, many of their developing systems are put on hold, sometimes causing permanent damage. Unusually high cortisol levels from constant stress, slow physical growth, delay sexual maturity, and can slow the growth of brain cells. The cause of high cortisol levels has surprised researchers. Living in poverty, schoolwork, or conflict with peers raises cortisol levels very little. According to researchers, what really does affect them are family issues. When a family experiences some sort of trauma, Father and mother have a fight, father leaves, or grandmother hits a kid. There's a physiological effect on the children. Their cortisol levels rise and stay high. Other findings include children react the same way each time parents fight or leave home. When adults learn to adapt to relentless, stressful circumstances, children always react as if they were encountering it for the first time. Many diseases suffered by middle-aged adults, like heart disease or high blood pressure, can be traced back to unresolved patterns of stress initiated during childhood. I'm not feeling quite as good as I was a few moments ago after reading that. And if you're a parent, you may not be either. Because we have desires, we have dreams, what we want to pass on to the next generation, what we wish our legacy to be. And then we encounter this thing that some refer to as family dynamics, what's going on in the family system, and it tends to get passed from one generation to the next. At least that's what Jacob might say. We've been following Jacob now. This is the ninth week we've been following him. We've been following him as he traveled, as he camped out, as he worked, as he deceived and got deceived. We have followed him as he wrestled with God at the Jabbok River, and we have followed him home. In fact, last week when we left Jacob, we left him at home. As we've taken that journey, We've at times been interested, at times aghast, at times bewildered, at times inspired. Jacob, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. He's been nothing if not interesting. But now he's come back home again, and now as, as the years turn gray, he has to start thinking about legacy. What am I going to leave behind? When I pass off the scene, what of me will be left? So we're going to look at that today. We're going to consider that. 
I want, to re- I want you to remember that when we left Jacob at home, his story, at least directly, seems to have come to a conclusion. Because within a chapter, we're off into the story of Joseph. And Joseph's story goes for 14 chapters in the book of Genesis, all the way through the very end of the book of Genesis. So in a sense, it seems like we're done with Jacob. Now we're turning to Joseph. We've studied Joseph before. We spent 12 weeks with Joseph back in 2007. So we're not going back to Joseph right now. But what we do need to recognize is that when Jacob's story ends and Joseph's story begins, Jacob doesn't disappear off the scene. He's still there. We still see windows into his life and into his heart. And we're going to look at two or three or four of those windows today because what we would like to believe, what I would like to believe, is this. Once Jacob wrestled with God at Jabbok, once God changed his name from swindler and cheat to one who wrestles with God and prevails, once that happened, all of his life changes, right? We've seen evidence of his change. So his family doesn't have the same problems anymore. Now all those dynamics change, and only good things are up ahead, right? Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Once you've wrestled with God at Jabbok, remember, after all, some of the dynamics in Jacob's family, they may be different in yours, but in Jacob's family, it had to do with favoritism. Favorite wives, favorite sons, this goes back two or three generations. Favoritism. Surely that will be over now. The wrestling match with God is over. It's time to pass on a new and a different legacy. So let's look in window number one. It's found in Genesis 37 as the Joseph story begins, but remember Jacob is still present. I want you to notice what happens. We're now in in Joseph's generation. Genesis 37 starting with verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. I thought we were done with this kind of stuff. At the Jabbok. You wrestled with God. You prevailed. God changed your name, changed your character, changed your destiny. What are we doing back in this favoritism game? I mean, just think about it. Isaac, Jacob's father, and Jacob. Think about what happens in their family. Isaac's family, favoritism. Jacob's family, favoritism. Isaac's family, intense family fighting and conflict that grows out of that. Jacob's family, intense family fighting and conflict that grows out of that. Isaac's family, to the point of deadly danger. Jacob's family, to the point of deadly danger. Isaac's family, there's an emotional cutoff that lasts for years. Jacob's family, an emotional cutoff that lasts for years. And I want to say, wait a minute, Jacob, you've been to the Jabbok. You've encountered God. What's the deal? How are you still passing this stuff along? Maybe we say, well, I mean, come on. 
This is not just centuries. This is millennia ago. It was true back then, not, not, not true now, surely. I remember. I remember lights beginning to go on in my mind as I started out in my graduate program in marriage and family therapy. I remember a class, particularly one class period. Still stands out in my mind. So this particular class period, the teacher was dealing with psychodynamic family therapy. You know, go back to your childhood and see stuff there and how it affects you now. And I was thinking, yeah, well, all right, I guess. And I was kind of listening. And then the teacher said, uh, could, could I get a volunteer, somebody to come up here and help me? Whenever somebody up front says that, I always get really interested in what shoes I wore that day. And I'm just sitting here thinking, avoid eye contact, avoid all eye contact. So I waited, looking at my shoes, until finally one of my, cl my classmates volunteered. She was a, a kind woman. This was a second career, so she was a bit older than the rest of us. And I thought, okay, good, good. She was more courageous by far than I was, but she volunteered, and so the professor brought her up front. He said, now, this could be a little bit vulnerable. You okay? I'm okay with that. Okay, well, here's what I'd like to ask you to do for me. I want to ask you two questions, and I want you to answer just spontaneously. Don't think about it a lot. Don't wrestle over it in your mind. Just what comes to mind naturally, if you would answer that. Okay. Okay, here's the first thing. Would you give me a memory from your childhood that is clear and distinct? And she said, yes. I remember hiding under the kitchen table as my father beat my mother. Whoa. It got heavy right then. I said, okay. Now, would you give me something you're struggling with today? And she said, well, I'm, today I'm, I mean, this has been true for quite a while, a long time, but I'm struggling with my weight. He said, okay. And he was pensive for a moment, and then he said to her, it strikes me that for many, many years of your life, the table has protected you from negative feelings. And I said, whoa, that's why I didn't volunteer. <laughs> that right there, that is exactly why I didn't volunteer. Get me up there and rip me open? No way. But she listened, and she nodded, and she became tearful. And there was a conversation in that classroom that unfolded that I'll just tell you felt kind of like we were on holy ground. And we listened to one generation passing it to the next. The pain, the anger, the protectiveness. Jacob. And that's not the only window into Jacob's life. You've been to the Jabbok, Jacob. You've wrestled with God. You've prevailed with God. Surely in the transformation that happened, all the family dynamics have disappeared. In your family, it's favoritism. Maybe different in other people's families. So we go to another window, Genesis 42. 
Now, I want you to remember before we read these words what's happening. We're into the story of Joseph. Joseph has had a precipitous fall from his perch as the favored son all the way down to the depths of Egypt's darkest dungeon. And then he has suddenly had a meteoric rise to the highest almost office of the most powerful empire of his day. It's been an incredible ride. And he has saved Egypt during famine, and he's about to save, well, some other people as well. Because back home, Jacob has heard, and he's wanting his sons to go save them from famine. That's when we look in this window, Genesis 42, starting with verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? In other words, why are you standing there with your teeth in your mouth? He continued, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So Jacob says, look, we're dying here. I mean, we're going to be literally dying here if we don't get some food to eat. But I've heard that there's food, there's grain in Egypt. It's going to be a great risk to go. But I'm willing to risk you, my sons, because if I risk you and it pays off, I'll save all of us. So please, Benjamin, just stay over here. Please go and get us grain, everyone except Benjamin. This is the son of my favorite wife, the brother of my favorite son. He's what I have. He's not going with you. rest of you, I'll risk you, but I'm not going to risk him. I mean, after all, Benjamin's a shy adolescent, a timid teenager. Needs to be protected, right? Think again. Just about three or four chapters later in Genesis 46, when the secret is out and they're all moving to Egypt, the narrator gives us a list of each son who's moving to Egypt along with his family members. Do you know that Benjamin is old enough not only to be married, not only to have children, but to have ten children? Ten! He's listed with more kids than any other brother. So if you're thinking... Shy adolescent or timid teenager, forget that thought. His dad is just protecting him. He's my favorite. What about these dynamics, Jacob? I thought we'd be done with those at the Jabbok. One more window into his life. Now they have to go back to Egypt again to try to get more food. Reuben and his dad, Jacob, are having it out because Reuben's saying, I'm not going back. The prince of Egypt told us we would not see his face if we didn't bring our youngest brother with us. Well, what'd you tell him you have a younger brother for? He asked us. Wow. So he's trying to sort that through with Reuben. And Reuben is telling him, look, Dad, I will be responsible. And here's the exchange that happens, Genesis 42, verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he's the only one left. 
The only, I can hear nine others stand there th- saying, we're standing right here. What are we, chopped liver? He's the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. I'm going to protect my favorite no matter what the cost. I'm going to continue passing on this family dynamic to the next generation because I got it from the previous and the previous generation to that. We'll just keep it going. And I think you've been to the Jabbok. You've wrestled with God. You've prevailed. What's going on? Is that truly the legacy you wish to pass on? It's the same question we have to ask. There are dynamics in every family. Dynamics. Some healthy, some not healthy, and some really not healthy. May not be favoritism. That's what it was for Jacob and clan. Maybe anger, the way anger gets dealt with. Maybe secrets, keeping secrets from each other. It may be addiction that has the family in a death grip. I don't know what it is, but there are dynamics. And so from the earlier the better, you need to begin asking, what is the legacy I want to pass on? What are the dynamics we're going to communicate to the next generation? I want to take you to one more window. One more window. And this is a window after Jacob has actually passed off the scene. He has died. And yet we hear Jacob speak from beyond the grave. It's after his death. Now understand what a nodal event that would have been, what a key event that would have been. You know, they say that if you want to bring family issues percolating to the surface, there's nothing like weddings and funerals. It's true. Premarital counseling that I've done much of over the years, at times the couple is saying, we're, we're about to pull our hair out. We don't, and I just smile and say, welcome to the family. <laughs> You're just getting a microcosm of what's going to be the rest of your life. <laughs> so just smile. Enjoy. Weddings can bring that stuff up. But maybe nothing quite like funerals to bring forth what might have been previously previously submerged issues. So this point, when Jacob has died, becomes a key moment now in the next generation, Joseph's generation. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle things? How will you face this? And it's especially important in this family because the death of the patriarch had been threatened as the time in the previous generation when there would be revenge taken. That's what Esau had said. When dad dies, I'm coming for you. Well, now Jacob has died, and the other brothers are terribly frightened that Joseph, who is the most mighty and powerful person, save one, he has all the ability to wreak vengeance. I wish I could have talked to Joseph. Because you know what I would have said to Joseph at that moment in time? I would have said to him, Joseph, now's your chance. You're at the crossroads. It's a fork in the road. 
You can take one direction and just continue the dynamics. Just keep passing them down the line, whether it's favoritism or anger or revenge or whatever it is. You can just, just keep passing it along. Or you can make a different choice. Go in a different direction. You could forgive. Because I've learned a lesson studying this book, Joseph, I would have said to him. And that lesson is very simple, and it's this. Today's forgiving grace is tomorrow's legacy of life. Today's forgiving grace is tomorrow's legacy of life. So remember that, Joseph, as you choose what to do. That's what I would have said to him. But I didn't get that chance. And furthermore, I didn't need that chance. Because Jacob has left a message. Back to Genesis 50. Now verse 15, the Scripture passage read so well by Ann Hoxie and Phil Hoxie this morning. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph. Notice, they didn't go to him. Might be dangerous. So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. In that moment, you see the family legacy change. It changes because of one word. Forgive. When Jacob left the message, he first says, forgive, and then he circles and comes back to it and says, please forgive. But Joseph's heart has already been touched by God, moved upon by God. The suffering, the pain he has endured has changed him enough so that he's willing and ready and able to take this another step in a godly direction. Because he knows that today's forgiving grace becomes tomorrow's legacy of life. And it can be the same in your family. Very same. Listen to the words of pastor and author Randy Frazee, who wrote this. I remember seeing, he writes, I remember seeing a picture of a husband and wife in a gentleman's office. I said, nice picture. I turned around and looked at the man, and he had tears in his eyes. So I asked him, why are you crying? He said, there was a time in our marriage when I was unfaithful to my wife, and she found out about it. She was so deeply hurt and injured, she was going to leave me and take the kids with her. 
I was overwhelmed at the mistake I had made. I shut the affair down. I went to my wife in total brokenness, knowing I did not deserve for her to answer in the affirmative. I asked her to forgive me, and she forgave me. This picture was taken shortly after that. When I see this picture, I see a woman who forgave me. I see a woman who was willing to stand with me in this picture. So when you see this picture, you say, nice picture. But when I see this picture, I see my life given back to me again. That's an act of grace. Today's forgiving grace becomes tomorrow's legacy of life. Do you want to change the dynamics that flow through your family? They're there. You may not even be aware of them. Remember, the table has protected you for many years from the negative feelings. They're there. And you have a choice today. You stand at a crossroads, a fork in the road, and there at that crossroads stands a gray-bearded, stooped gentleman who at one point in time was a thief and a cheat, but who has been so strong in his weakness that he has wrestled with God and prevailed. And as God has continued to work in that family to ultimately bless all the nations in the earth, a change happened in his son that redirected the flow. And that's where you stand. I don't know what the issues are. They may be superficial enough that you can face them and deal with them and apologize and repent and forgive before the sun sets today. Or they may be so deep, so painful, that you need a helper, a helper, a human helper, a competent Christian therapist, and a divine helper, the Holy Spirit. But with those helpers, you can be moved through a process, the end goal of which is being able to say, am I in the place of God? Please, come near. You are forgiven. Today's forgiving grace becomes tomorrow's legacy of life. And that may be the last and the most important message of this man, Jacob. This man who through whose messed up family becomes the family through whom God will bless all the nations in the earth. And his message is one of forgiveness and reconciliation. Jacob, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. The man who has been to the dark side and back. The man whose family has wrestled more than most. And the man whose family ultimately finds a way to forgive. He leaves you standing there, making your decision today. As you make it, don't forget, tomorrow's legacy of life, 
depends on today's forgiving grace. Will you forgive?